Hey, this is Doug Jones from Fantastic Four Rise of the Silver Surfer, Hellboy 1 and 2, Hocus Pocus, Pan's Labyrinth, and currently on Falling Skies. But today, you are listening to Genretainment. Hi everyone, welcome to another episode of Genretainment over here on SciFiPulseRadio.com. We're your hosts, Marks and Julie, and Genretainment is where we talk about what's happening in the world of film, TV, and web series. We give you interviews with writers, directors, producers, and actors in both independent and not-so-independent creations. And for today's show, we have two interviews for you. We start off with a chat with actress Kira Zagorski, one of the stars of Sci-Fi Channel's new series, Helix, plus their executive producer, Steve Maeda. But we don't stop there. After that, we have a fun interview with fantasy and sci-fi author Hans Cummings. He talks about his books and gives some great tips on writing a book. We do want to mention before we get started with the interviews that the music you just heard at the beginning of the show was a snippet from the theme song for our web series, Reality on Demand, a song composed and performed by our friend Tishan Hardy. You can find our web series at realityondemandseries.com. Also, if you haven't heard it yet, we recently did a holiday special episode with SFP Now's Ian Culling. Mm-hmm. Uh, we talk about uh, some all of kinds our, of stuff. Yeah, some of our favorite and, and not so favorite TV shows and movies from 2013. We're true geek fans, therefore <laughs> our conversations about our favorites will eventually devolve into our least favorite. Of favorites. course, of course. <laughs> so you can go check that out at SciFiPulseRadio.com. And now let's get started with our first interview. How long? Twelve hours. Who else knows? Our primary goal is to identify this pathogen. What we're dealing with here, none of us has ever seen. What's it doing to him? It's changing him. He had this look in his eyes. It wasn't human. This wasn't a damn accident! We're not just breaking international laws, we're screwing with the laws of nature! Yes, hi. Thanks for uh, being here because we're really excited. I've been really excited about this show since I got to take the tour and see you all up there up in Montreal. And um, so I was wondering, Kira, how this role or this project is different from other projects that you've done in the past? How's it different? Um, hmm. Well, most of the time what I've done in the past is come in and do these really cool guest stars. And so... uh, being in a show where you are the core, uh, one of the core cast members, that's that's going to be one thing that's going to be a hugely different experience. Uh, and uh, and you're kind of creating. When I've come in to do guest stars for shows, there's a there's a sense of going to somebody else's playground. Mm-hmm. And uh, usually it's a great experience, but you you come in, you know, ready to go and prepared, and you and you have this amazing experience and then and then that's it and, and sometimes like for certain shows especially in the sci-fi world or um or supernatural the stargates those things that i've done um there there's a sense of your character kind of lives on with certain people and and that's kind of fun about how sci-fi works but with this it's you're you're creating the playground you know mm-hmm. as far as the cast goes so um it, it's great because it gives me a lot more ownership of my craft and of of um, where I go with it and and uh, being able to to bring my full my full experience to the part. 
Okay, yeah, I, just I, because I, I'm there from the beginning. I think that's that's a, a really good way to put it. And also, I mean, for us, uh, it's a great opportunity as opposed to, you know, the feature version of this, which would be, you know, two and a half hours long, and, and you'd, you'd start, you'd introduce the character, and you'd meet them and spend time with them and then resolve it, and you'd be done. This is this is the 13-hour version of it. And so it really yeah. allows you to spend some time with these people, really let the relationships play out. Somebody that you thought was you know, this horrible, horrible person in the beginning ends up not being quite so horrible, or at least you understand where they're coming from, um, and you and you have yeah. time. You can go for episodes thinking one thing about a character or a, a relationship and then find out six episodes down the road that, wait a second, there's more to this than I thought. And so that was our challenge mm-hmm. is, you know, getting that, making sure that that, that, that stuff happened and felt, still felt credible. Well, working with Billy is incredible. I mean, he's he's technically amazing. He's been doing this for a long time. He's a master at what he does. He's very emotionally connected and full and always available and powerful. And so it's kind of an interesting combination. Um, And the other thing about him is that he's a blast to work with. He is so funny. Uh, The show is a psychological, for me, the thing I loved about the show is the psychological thriller aspect of it. And it's frightening and it's scary. And there's all these things that happen. You have these, really dramatic scenes then you get in a scene with him and I can't tell you how many times I would start cracking up and Steve was there for some of that (laughs) but he is just so funny and so there's um he's just a blast to work with and Hero um is somebody that I've always admired um since I saw him in The Last Samurai I think he's an incredible person and artist and he is always right there for you and he's always um He's he's always supporting the story to its fullest. He was amazing. I learned so much from just being in the room with him. So um, I think for me, they just kind of raised the bar for me. And it, it feels like as an actor, you're only as good as your scene partner. And I feel like anything that I do well on this show is probably from being in scenes with those two. <laughs> so it was, it was a pretty exceptional experience. I feel like we really got a, a a pretty incredible cast chemistry as well. I mean, considering that you're, you know, we have uh, some of our actors who have been doing this for years and years and years, and you know, uh, some that are, you know, like like Billy, who who are household names, and and then others who mm-hmm. you may not have seen before. And I, I think everybody really kind of elevated and and brought their A game to this. And and I'm hoping that in addition to the folks you recognize, there's going to be some some uh, real breakouts in this as well. I love. Uh, the psychological thriller piece of it. Um, I think that because we are trapped in this isolated environment with a deadly virus, uh, what's really interesting is that everyone's darkness comes out uh, because we've got these life and death stakes going on and there's these interesting relationships going on, but we can't quite deal with the relationship right now because we've got something better to do, which is survive. Um, But it takes some of the characters to some very dark places and they start doing things that they might not do if they were in regular circumstances. And so their true humanity comes out the, the good and the bad. And I think that's, what's so interesting about the show. And for me, the unique part of it, the psychological side of it. Yeah, I, I would, I would absolutely agree with that. And, and for me, on top of that, um, the, I, I would say the main thing for me, as I stand back now and look back at, at the season that we've just, you know, uh, that we're kind of finishing up, um, now for us um, is uh, sci-fi in particular, both Sony and sci-fi, but sci-fi really wanted us to kind of get out of the box of, of a typical outbreak show. And from the very beginning, um, you know, the pilot was a great template and, and really set the stage for us 
Uh, but then Sci-Fi mm-hmm. just gave us free reign and said, you know, between between you know Studio Network, Ron Moore, everybody, we all kind of put our heads together and said, what can we do? What can we take this show where it starts in one place and then goes someplace, hopefully really unexpected, where you you know we want the audience to play along and, and say, hey, I, I know what's going to happen here. Of course, it's going to be this, and then have it be something completely different. And we tried to do that with creative choices we made, with story ideas, with uh, some casting choices, with you know whether characters live or die, with music choices, with how we edited the show. And so that was really fun to have the creative freedom to be able to uh, get outside of, of the typical show box. Something else that was fun um, off of what you said, Steve, is that because we had the 13 episodes right away, every director would come in so excited to um, go with their own creativity. Um, so, you know, sometimes directors get hired into TV shows and it's so formulaic and they're kind of uh, a slave to whatever everybody wants them to do. But everyone came in with their own style and um, the, it, it blends together with the Helix style that was that was set. But at the same time, they're bringing their own ideas and their own input. And so they were so pumped to be there. And it was really fun working with all of them. Yeah. And mm-hmm. also yeah. that we've mentioned before that this is a really impressive cast and it's an ensemble cast. So are there any funny or interesting stories that you would like to share about what happened while filming? Filming? Um, oh, my gosh. Well, you probably have well, plenty, I'm sure. When, you, when you're so spending, many. you know, 12, 13 hours a day, uh, five days a week, uh, sometimes six days a week well, with there is, people. <laughs> there was something that was really hilarious, and it was during the pilot, and it was one of my favorite moments because it was such a – pressure day it was such an intense day and uh the the working conditions were kind of crazy because we're in those um those suits that you see and sometimes they're a bit tricky to work in because you have you can't really hear everyone outside and so they had to figure out ways to rig the mics into the helmets that you could at least hear the person in the scene with you and sometimes that was tricky or if you move a certain way and your air gets shut off I mean, so, so there was certain things that we'd have to work around with the suits and it was just this one day that was just so intense all day long and then um we get into doing some of the dialogue in the scene and um billy <laughs> billy has to uh talk to to neil's character and billy's character's name is alan and his brother's name is peter but you know i guess he just didn't have that registered in there yet and he's trying to start the scene and i'm completely connected emotionally and i'm right there and then he starts looking at neil's face and starts going alan Alan is <laughs> calling him his character's name, and it, he didn't register. So instead of, you know, I thought the more he says it, then it's going to wake him up, and he's going to stop. <laughs> he's going to realize what he's done, and he just didn't. He just kept going deeper, and I lost it. It was just so funny because the tension was so high, and then, you know, we're in these really dramatic close-ups, and he just he had no idea what, that he was even doing it. So there were things like that what, that would happen that were just so funny that if the audience knew what was going on with some of these really intense scenes, they would just, you know, they'd be amazed. And then there was one really interesting day. It's a very cool scene. I can't wait for you all to see it. I think it's in episode six, maybe. But um, uh, Jordan's sitting there, and at one point, um, Hero kind of is a hero. He just is. He's just magic. Like, he just kind of happens (laughs) to be... uh, you know, in the right place at the right time. He's kind of like the secret little ninja. And um, I won't tell you how it happened, but it's 
somehow Jordan's hair started to catch on fire. And <sighs> Hero just, like, flies across the room, grabs it, gets it out, and it was just split second and it was just no words were spoken he just kind of handled it and everybody else was starting to freak out and I just thought this guy really is a ninja like what is going on here <laughs> <laughs> yeah I mean we had so much fun and there's I mean there's just there's so much that happened it's like a big mess of crazy experiences but um but yeah that that first thing with Ollie calling Neil, his character, it just was so funny. Because the thing is, he did it two days in a row. Yeah, and I just thought, this is great. I will never forget this. It was so funny. But, yeah, there was lots of good times on set. <laughs> well, thank you so much. Hello, this is Anthony C. Ferrante, the director of Sharknado, and you're listening to Genretainment. Thanks to Sci-Fi Channel for letting us speak with Kira and Steve. Now let's get to our interview with author Hans Cummings. Hi, welcome to the show. Hello. Now I met your wife up at Gen Con. It was taking, yes. care, of, taking care of your booth while you were away. Uh, she did a great. Generally, the wives do take care of these things. <laughs> yeah, it was one of the few times I stepped away to get food. <laughs> Those are long. But she did a great job, you know, selling me on your books and, and their unique angles. And uh, so I kept your information, and that's why we decided to contact you. So take your wife out to a nice dinner. Yes. <laughs> and thanks. I will um, do so. Tell us a little bit about how you got started in, in writing. Um, I started kind of in high school just dabbling. I, had, I think I had read a book that I didn't particularly like and thought, well, surely I can do better than that. Um, <laughs> That attempt probably was not better than what I had read. Uh, so I still have it somewhere. It was handwritten. It was it's pretty cliche, awful, and very derivative. Um, of course, I you know I did all the writing classes in college and still dabbled here and there with short stories and such. But I really didn't do anything until oh I guess it was 2006 or so for National Novel Writing Month. Mm -hmm. um, something I, I don't know why I decided to suddenly okay, I'm going to try to write a novel in 30 days. Maybe it was just to see if I could do it because I was still still kind of interested in maybe trying to write a novel, but I hadn't actually done anything kind of towards that goal yet. So I tackled it, and in 30 days, I managed to crank out like 95,000 words. I was like, holy cow, I can actually wow. I can actually do this. And, and it wasn't actually all that bad. I still read it and chuckle it and chuckle at it and kind of enjoy the story I wrote, even though I haven't actually done anything with it. Um, so then the next year I tried it again, and then I had a few hiccups the second and third years. Um, I had a death in the family both years while I was writing. Did you start to think National it was cursed? I did, actually. I started getting a complex. I'm like, man, this, is, <laughs> this isn't good. No. Somebody close to me dies every time I try to write a book. Stop I writing I was kill for people the love in of the God. <laughs> That sounds like but, a book right there. Yeah. Yeah. And then the fourth year, I wrote another book. And by this time, I was um, with my current wife. And she read it and said, this is really good. You need, to, you need to get this published, whether you do it yourself or you, you know, go through an agency and, and find somebody to do it. This, you need to publish this. And I said, well, okay. So after doing a bunch of research, I decided to go the, um, the self-publishing route. And I hired an editor, had what we call beta readers, you know, friends of mine or acquaintances. Some of them I you know, had, had, hadn't actually met in person and said, here, read this. Tell me what you think. And I got some good feedback from them. I hired an artist to do the cover for me. 
um, which is not the cover that you see on Wings of Twilight now. I actually had another cover before that one. And I put it out there, I think it was uh, October of 2011 when I finally released Wings of Twilight, and that became my debut novel. And since then, I've written three other books, uh, one of which is a direct follow-up to Wings of Twilight called Iron Fist of the Aurochs, so that's a sequel. And then I wrote two young adult science fiction novels. There's going to be more of the science fiction, not the young adult science fiction, at least four to five more, I would say. It's kind of an ongoing series. I haven't quite decided how long it's going to be. And then there will be more fantasy novels in the same world, though not necessarily with the same characters. Okay. Now you're a writer in Indiana. Woo-hoo! Yes. So how um, versus writers maybe in some large, or like uh, New coastal York cities, New whatever. York. Or, or does it really matter as a writer? Can you pretty much these days be anywhere you want and yeah. be part of the writing industry? I, I think it doesn't really matter much. Um, We're so connected by the internet, aren't we? <laughs> yeah, everybody's connected by the internet now. And so you can always get, you can always find people to ask opinions of or, um, if you need to do some kind of research on you know, what's it like at this particular location, it's pretty easy to find somebody on the internet who is near enough there that they can tell you. Mm-hmm. I found Google Maps to be a tremendous help when I was writing my that very first um, National Novel Writing Month novel that I set in New York City. And I have never actually been to New York City, but I used Google Maps and like <laughs> Street View and used that to do my descriptions. Huh. So it was kind of like being there, but not but really. With, but without all the crime and the straight smelling, you're like, you're in. <laughs> right. And I have to travel to New York, which was a plus because at that time I couldn't afford it. Yeah. <laughs> and I was setting my story in the future anyway. So all I really needed to know was like which intersections were what ah. and kind of generally what was in that area. I didn't necessarily need to know exactly what was in this building at this time because I could say, well, it's a couple hundred years in the future, you know, that whatever was there in 19, oh, in God. 2000. 11 is no longer there yeah and who could say i was wrong <laughs> you're you're completely wrong and a few hundred years from now that place is still there just sure. say there's a starbucks you're safe yeah yeah <laughs> <laughs> oh god i hope not that many years in the future i like to think <laughs> they haven't gotten quite the hold on the coffee industry it will be on every corner. It'll be like in uh, Shrek 2 where they have a panic at one Starbucks and they just run across the street into the other one. Yeah. <laughs> or like on the um, Sleepy Hollow, the new TV show, and he's like, what's that? It's a Starbucks. And that's a Starbucks too. Yes. Is there some kind of law? <laughs> <laughs> well, let's talk a little bit about your books and the okay. worlds they're set in. Let's start off with the young adult uh, sci-fi series you've been writing. Those are the Zach Jackson novels. The first one, Zach Jackson and the Cult of Athos, and the second one, Zach Jackson and the Cytherian Academy. Uh, right now I'm planning on all of them having that kind of naming convention, Zach Jackson and the dot, dot, dot. It takes place in the 43rd century. The Earth is is part of a uh, alliance with colonies in Alpha Centauri and a few other uh, nearby star systems, not all of which I've fleshed out because I'm still world building and it's not necessary to know that sort of thing for the novels I've written so far. Mm-hmm. And they've discovered probably about 500 years ago that there is a whole galactic civilization out there that's this giant galactic confederation that's way more advanced than we are. So they're kind of newcomers on the whole scene. So that's, that's the background. Um, other than that sort of thing, though, and the fact that there's humanoid aliens that we can relate to, I've tried to make it a kind of hard sci-fi universe. So there's no 
artificial gravity unless you can achieve it by like spinning your space station. Mm-hmm. There's no um, faster than light communications. Although there is faster than light travel because I, I wanted to go to other planets. <laughs> <laughs> and plus it was a young adult story. So I figured I couldn't get too hard on the sci-fi or I might lose my potential audience. Yeah. So the first book has him joining up a uh, or an organization called the Junior Rangers, which is basically uh, that universe's version of the Boy Scouts and Girl Scouts, except that it's not just young boys or young girls from Earth. It's young kids from all over the galaxy of many different species. Mm-hmm. So they go out on this wacky adventure. It's not really that wacky, and you know, misadventures happen, and they end up crashing on this planet and have to learn how to survive, just the four of them, mm. while they're cut off from the rest of their troop. And then the second book, he um, goes off to school at Cytherian Academy, which is a city that's in the clouds of Venus. Now, people might be saying, now, wait a minute, Venus is kind of a hellhole. How can, how can anybody live there? <laughs> I was reading on some science website a couple years ago that said, suggested that breathable air is a lifting gas on Venus. So you could take a structure and fill it with air that we could breathe and it would float in Venus's clouds at about 50 kilometers, which just happens to be about the right pressure at sea level on Earth. So it's about one atmosphere of pressure, and the temperature's fairly comfortable. So you still wouldn't want to go outside, but you wouldn't have to have nearly the kind of hardcore environmental stuff that you need. So I thought, well, that would be kind of cool if somebody built like scientific stuff in the clouds of Venus where they wouldn't have to expend any energy to keep it at a livable level. So we should hmm. start buying real estate now. Yeah. Yeah. So he goes off to school there and he and since it's a young adult novel, you know, he has the same kind of trials and tribulations just going to school that a 13-year-old would have with the whole science part of the universe kind of as background. Mm-hmm. So how did you come up with the idea of doing a young adult novel and saying it? It sounds like good. Yeah. Um the idea came to me when I was reading Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows. I thought somebody should do a sci-fi version of this. <laughs> <laughs> Hmm. This was several years ago, obviously, before I had even really considered starting writing. And the more I thought about it, I thought, well, why don't I just I just start taking notes, what kind of uh, universe it would be. And I eventually kind of did all this background world building, and I just decided, well, I'm going to write it. I'm going to write kind of a Harry Potter and space story, except there's not going to be a Dark Lord. There's not going to be a prophecy. There won't be people flying around on broomsticks. There's no magic. There's no nothing like that. So it'll be kind of a hard sci-fi version of, but the structure is going to be kind of the same. You know, it follow each book follows him kind of year to year as he grows up, and we follow you know the changes in the culture and the civilization and how he learns to cope with that. Now aliens are always fun, so mm-hmm. I wonder who some of the main alien races are in your books. Yeah, uh, the main ones are called Devorans. They're kind of a lizardy type um, species. Uh, they they have a very variety of different kinds of um, body types, but basically humanoid lizards. They're very long-lived, and they are probably, if not the oldest species in the galaxy at this point, they're the ones that have had the longest continuous civilization. So they're kind of the ones who are in charge of everything, at least for the Galactic Confederation. And then the Ursidians are kind of bear-like, burly. They kind of think of themselves as like the noble warriors, but in reality, that's kind of all just show. They like the creature comforts like everybody else, and they have a perfectly uh, advanced society, but all the trappings, they kind of make people try to think that it's they're still the kind of noble warrior type. 
race, but it's, you know, it's all fluff. But they share their planet with another race called the Earths, which are similar to Ursidians, except that they actually have four legs and they're kind of like a bear centaur looking creature. Hmm. So there's two species on that planet. And then I have Valtraxians, which basically I was inspired by the Brusk from the game Star Frontiers. Mm-hmm. If anybody's familiar with that, it was a really old role-playing game from TSR in the 80s. Uh, I describe them as a cross between a grasshopper and a praying mantis. So they're about the size of a Shetland pony or so. Mm-hmm. Okay. And they live in hive cities on their on their planet. And those are the ones that I've dealt with the most so far. I think I've mentioned a few others in passing, but I haven't actually gone into a lot of detail on many of the other ones yet. Now, are there any challenges that are specific to writing for young adult books? Yeah, sometimes I find myself dumbing down the language, and I've been yelled at by some of my readers for doing that. (laughs) (laughs) Rightly so, because you don't need to dumb down the language. Uh, the biggest challenge I have is remembering, like, I don't need to, like, make this so simplified. I can actually describe this the way I want to, and the kids will figure it out either through context or if they can't get it through context. I know when I was a kid, I would just look something up. Yeah. It's now even it's e- even easier. <laughs> yeah. It's so easy to look stuff up now that you don't understand than there was back in the 80s when I had to actually go get an encyclopedia. Oh, yeah. I mean, I still have a big old dictionary and a big old thesaurus on the, but yeah, it used to be. What does that mean? Or how do you spell that? Look it up. You know? <laughs> Struggle a little bit with some of the themes that I want to bring up. I, I know that there's a lot of people who don't, who think, well, with young adult books, you should go into all the themes that parents are afraid to talk about with their kids. But part of me also wants to avoid so much controversy that, you know, people will be like burning my name in effigy and things like that because, oh, he had, you know, this 14 year old having sex. It's like, you know, that does happen. Yeah. No matter how much you put your head in the sand, there's kids in high school who are like sophomores and juniors who are having sex with their peers. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But you also want it to be an entertaining <laughs> read, not just controversial. Right. <laughs> right. So I've, been careful about kind of avoiding that sort of thing because every once in a while I find myself thinking, well, you know, if this was really realistic, this kid would be doing this. But I said, well, I don't think anybody wants their kids to be reading that though. <laughs> there could, there could like, be like the books. I I'm I make a specific effort not to have any profanity in the young adult books, even though I know if I was a kid and I was away at school and I didn't have any supervision, there would be no filter. <laughs> Because that's when you're starting to test boundaries. If there's no boundaries, look out. Yeah, I mean, and around the teachers, maybe there wouldn't be something. But if when you know you got a group of kids that are you know in a pizza place and they're all having pizza together, it's going to be an R-rated conversation. <laughs> yeah. Well, gosh, I remember being young, and it was like you're rebelling if you're away from parents and adults' ears, and you said a bad word. It was like, I got away with it. Yeah. <laughs> I think you should make like a parallel universe setting, like a different book, and be like Zach Jackson with an X instead of a Z, <laughs> and then you just say whatever, do whatever. <laughs> Before you wrote the young adult, I mean, did you read a lot of young adult books, or did you feel like you need to do a little more research, or, or was it just Harry Potter was just the overall springboard? Well, I, I did read well, since I read all the Harry Potter books, but I also read a few others. Um, I had a children's literature class, and we read quite a few young adult books in that class when I was working towards my English degree. And there's a few other novels of the names of which I can't remember right now. But I I did read a bunch of young adult books, so I was familiar with generally how they go, or at least what sorts of things are written about and 
what sorts of things people don't write about. I mean, you generally don't have young adult books that are about, you know, demonic possession and, you know, <laughs> sacrifices to the blood god and things like that. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh, I one of my favorite memories from growing up was reading these books that were, you know, geared towards young adults. I mean, it's just, I learned to get obsessed with reading back then. <laughs> I was bad. I because skipped of these ahead series. to like wild cards and stuff. <laughs> he was reading and watching very inappropriate things my, for his My mom age would know what's in the book. So. Yeah. <laughs> Your parents aren't going to read them to see if it's okay. But nowadays, there's such a larger young adult book market now. They're over the place anymore, it seems yeah. like. Well, there was a pretty good run in the 80s. There seems like a really strong market now. Yeah. Compared to, I guess because of all the movies like Has Harry the market Potter. changed since you've been doing it? Uh, not that I've really noticed. Uh, I've been so busy with I, – I don't have my finger on the market as much as I probably should. It's it's really hard having a day job and trying to write. Yeah. yeah I since I'm doing jobs. it myself, you know, I also have to do the marketing and all yeah. that, and I just don't have time for everything that I really should. So some things fall by the wayside, and keeping my thumb on the pulse of the market is not one of those things that I am very <laughs> diligent about. <laughs> Yeah, you have to sleep at least three hours a day. <laughs> right. And plus, I know the market has cycles. Mm -hmm. So what's hot this year, you know, might not be hot next year. And then, you know, five years from now, it's hot again. So just keep so, writing. Yeah. Yeah. So I figure since I'm not doing this for my main source of income right now, that I can afford to just write what I want. And then if it suddenly becomes hot, then great. I already have stuff ready. Mm -hmm. And if I miss it, there's just the next time. That's yeah. a good way of thinking of it. Yeah, it's a good approach. That'll help you avoid some of the typical writer neuroses. <laughs> yeah, and I know some people who try to chase the market where they, um, you know, like, oh, well, zombies are hot now. I have to write a bunch of zombie stories or yeah. vampires are hot. I have to write a bunch of vampire stories. I was like, well, why don't you just write what you want? <laughs> yeah, it's not very genuine. It comes across as pretty phony if you're, if yeah. you're just trying to chase the market, I think. Uh -huh. Just like any art, really. I mean, if you're just churning stuff out because you think it's what people will buy, it, it tends to show. Yeah. Well, let's talk a little bit about your fantasy books. Yeah. Okay. The fantasy books takes take place in the world of Calliope. It's a fantasy world that, of course, I created because I can't afford to buy the licenses and the rights to write in anybody else's world. <laughs> um, I always liked the kind of shared world fantasy novels, like the Forgotten Realms novels, the Dragonlance novels, that sort of thing. But, of course, I, I had no idea how to go about writing for those worlds, so I just made my own. And decided, well, I'm going to write a bunch of stories in this world. They don't have to be connected necessarily. So it'll be my own shared world fiction with just one person writing. Yeah. It's not really shared, I guess. But <laughs> I'm not going to share with anybody. It's shared with me, myself, and I. That's right. It's a world that's kind of on the mend. It was practically destroyed probably a thousand years ago. My timeline's a little fuzzy deliberately so that I have time, I have room to wiggle mm -hmm. with that where it was kind of shattered and then brought back together and it was just barely held together by the magic in the world and now it's healing. So things like magic and fairies and stuff are returning to the world now. And the first story, Wings of Twilight, I wrote and it was not intended to be kind of a serious fantasy story at all. It was going to be a, I intended it to be a scathing can't think of the right word now because I'm so tired. I've been commentary? working a lot of overtime. Not really a commentary, but kind of a not a spoof either. I was going to make fun of labor unions, to put it in a not so elegant way. Yeah, I was going to make fun of labor unions. It was just going to be kind of farcical and a spoof on that. And I forgot to put a lot of the jokes in. And my themes started to get more serious as I wrote the story. And when I got to the end, I ended up having to like change all the names 
and remove all the references to like the union of monsters that were protecting this dungeon. <laughs> huh. Just I had just completely forgot about the jokes. So it ended up not being as funny as I intended, even though people still tell me it's a funny story. But mm-hmm. it's because the characters themselves are kind of amusing. It's not because I wrote a lot of jokes into the story. I wrote that, and it tells the story of a group of monsters who are living in this underneath this volcano and kind of like you know the evil overlord's secret volcano lair. And they're just kind of going about their lives as people keep invading their home and trying to kill them and take their stuff. So I wrote it from the point of view. The monsters are like, why are these people coming in to kill us all the time? We just want to like, I have this stuff to fix. I have, I have to clean this room. I, <laughs> I don't have time for this. So I wrote that and it just, it was kind of a one-off at the, okay, that was amusing. I wrote it to amuse myself and people seemed to like it. And my wife really loved it and thought I should publish it. So I did. And then at some point during the editing phase, I came up with this idea of how to continue the story. Mm-hmm. So I wrote the sequel after having not intended to write a sequel to it. So I got a little bit more into the world and the backstories of the characters that we encountered in the first book. And I built on that for the second book. And I decided that uh, since the evil overlord was spoilers, kind of was defeated in the first book, because, you know, what kind of fantasy story would it be if the evil overlord won? It would be a dark fantasy story, which was not what I was writing. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was defeated, and they decided, well, we're going to try to make our city legit. So they spend the second book trying to make themselves kind of a respectable city and get themselves taken seriously by the other races of the surface world, like the dwarves and the elves and the humans, and say, hey, you know, we have a right to to live and trade with you guys. You know, we're not just monsters. We have lives and families, too. So that's... Monsters are people, too. Right. Yeah. So those two books kind of tell the story about how the city came into being and have become kind of a tale of acceptance in a world that sees you as a monster. Now, the main characters are monsters. What kind of monsters are they? The protagonist is actually a fairy who looks like a demon because in my world, the fairies are formed out of chaos so they can take many different forms. So I called him like a fire fairy and he takes the form of, you know, a guy with goat hooves and wings and he can light himself on fire whenever he wants to. Mm-hmm. So that's Sarvish, the main character. He's also pictured on the current cover of Wings of Twilight. And then see, I have twin Drax, which are kind of short, diminutive, lizard-like creatures. Uh, Kale and Delilah, they're brother and sister. They were hatched from the same egg. Um, he's kind of a trapsmith kind of guy, and she's a sorceress. And they're the biggest source of comic relief in the books. They I, I modeled Delilah on Dot Warner from the Animaniacs. Mm. She she was my inspiration for Delilah's personality, uh-huh. just because I thought that would be funny. Oh well, yeah. <laughs> and most people reading it probably haven't seen Animaniacs since that was the '90s, so I can get away with that sort of thing, I guess. <laughs> and then Bargle's kind of a three-legged, tentacled mouth that walks around just eating garbage or anything else he can fit in there. He's just the eating machine. See the janitor. And <laughs> yeah, like yeah, like a janitor. And then I have a bunch of minotaurs. The first book, there's uh, Soterios. He's kind of the worrywart who's always taking up causes and worrying about all the lesser creatures in the in the area, like the goblins who everybody kind of uses cannon fodder and thinks they're stupid because they are stupid. But he's always, you know, trying to. He's like the bleeding heart, you know. Oh, we have to we have to think about the little guy too. And then there's also Pancras, who's the um, 
he's a minotaur necromancer and he doesn't have such a fascination with death so much that he just looks for volunteers who after they die they want to keep serving so then he raises them as their skeletons and zombies and just has them do his bidding for him so i, I kind of tried to make him like a good necromancer because in every story the necromancer is always the bad guy or they're always some kind of vile evil person yeah <clears throat> and i decided to make him like i i deliberately made him a friendly likable person who kind of just uses his dead things as tools and all of his dead things were volunteers hmm. well if they're gonna volunteer yeah i also i also made him homosexual oh cool because i found i thought that would be amusing i i don't know why it i don't find i don't find homosexuals necessarily amusing or think that they deal with dead things nothing like that i just thought that <laughs> I'm digging myself into a big hole here. I just thought that it would be an interesting personality <laughs> type for this guy who everybody fears so much that he's just he's just this guy. And of course in my in my books I actually have several characters who are homosexual, but nobody nobody says anything about it. It's like, oh, okay, whatever. And I think I was trying to make a point with that. Now I wonder about influences as an author. What other writers have influenced your style? And I'm also guessing from the things you're saying and, and describing things that you're you're also a role-playing gamer. I mean, you're also Gen Con, but that doesn't necessarily mean you're a gamer. But I'm guessing that you're also a gamer. Yeah, I've been a gamer since like 82, <laughs> so most of my life. Probably my biggest influences – I've heard people say that they can see um, R.A. Salvatore's influences in some of my descriptions of fight scenes. I don't get quite that detailed. I tend to be short and brutal in my fight scenes because – I don't think I write them particularly well, so I just get them over with. Um, and usually fights are short and brutal. Right, and they usually are. I mean, you usually don't have like this dance of sword play that lasts for half an hour because most people don't have that kind of endurance. No. Michael Stackpole is probably my biggest influence. I went to every one of his writing seminars at Gen Con, mm. which is kind of the same as taking a college class. Oh, really? <laughs> he goes into so much detail and... It's just they're really worthwhile seminars. He's the biggest influence on my probably my writing style also. And of course, I, I've read a ton of novels by Margaret Weiss and Tracy Hickman growing up, and I, I've met all of these people and talked to them about writing. Great. Yeah, cool. For gaming, what kind of games are some of your favorites that you play? Well, I kind of have to say Dungeons & Dragons because that's the one I started with. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't actually play it currently, <laughs> but I did yeah. start with that, and I've played every edition that's been out since 82. Do you play Pathfinder now? Or I do just... play Pathfinder right now. Currently, I'm on Pathfinder. Yeah. I find that the older I get, the more complicated systems are less appealing to me. Yes. Um, Ten years ago, that sort of thing wouldn't bother me, and I was like, yeah, let's read all the books and learn all the rules, and now I'm just like, eh, it's too much work. Give me something that's <laughs> I more always polite. felt that way. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if I'm just getting lazy in my old age or if I'm just – I don't know. But I, I know well, I other like, guys like who are story. my age. Yeah. Yeah, I, I know other guys who are my age who say the same thing. They prefer rules light systems the older they get just because <clears throat> they have so much going on in their lives that they don't have time for system mastery of something as complicated as Pathfinder or D&D. Yeah. Um, I well, do like Shadowrun yeah. as a setting. I really like Shadowrun as a mm-hmm. setting. Um, I've only played the game a couple of times, but I really did like it. Most Star Wars RPGs I really love, especially the West End Games one. I played the heck out of that. Yeah, that was my first. That was your first. West End game, Star Wars. Yeah. So. Um, my game collection is stupidly huge. 
<laughs> more games than I'll ever play. Part of that is because I'm the submissions coordinator for the Any Awards, uh, which is the RPG industry awards that they have every year at Gen Con. So I'm exposed to like every game that gets released in a Mm -hmm. given year. And I've been doing this for almost five years now. So I'm like, oh, that's such a cool game that I would never have seen if I hadn't been involved with this awards thing. And then I get the game and I have it and I love it. And, you know, nobody else in my gaming group has it and wants to play it. (laughs) (laughs) That's cool. I know like right now we recently interviewed the the game designers of Fate. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. And Hicks and those guys. And we interviewed uh, game designers from Mutants and Masterminds. Yeah. So. Oh, yeah. I really like Mutants and Masterminds. Yeah, that's Julie's favorite. So well, that's my favorite She hasn't one. played Fate yet, though. So. I haven't played Fate. I, I played I, one Fate game. I liked it a lot. I, I only ran a Mutants and Masterminds game. I haven't actually played one. But I do have the second edition books. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think we're going to try playing Fate uh, sometime yeah. in the future here. I like the rules. Like, yeah, it's like you said. You just... You know, when you're younger and you've got boundless energy and and all kinds of time, you know, it's one thing. But, you know, if you want to get together with some friends and just play a game once a week or once a month, you don't want to have to study for five hours before you go. Is the the biggest hurdle for me because I have all these other things I want to write and I have my day job and I have a commute that's much longer than I want it to be. So by the time I get home, I'm like, "Ah, I don't want to prep for a game. Let me just... Do something else that's more entertaining. Mm-hmm. <laughs> or you just want to be able to show up for the game. You know, it's like someone bring the pizza, someone bring the cookies, and just hang out and play a game. <laughs> <laughs> Which usually happens at my house, and my wife is the one who makes the cookies or the brownies for it. So mm-hmm. Yeah, ours is always brownies. Do you ever play GURPS? I ask because you seem very much into hard sci-fi, and GURPS is a really good game system for that. No, I've never played GURPS, and that is one of the few I do not own. Ah. However, ah. I do have Eclipse phase, which is very hard. Oh, that's sci-fi. true. Yeah. But I've never... Marks is a bit of a GURPS junkie. Well, I've never actually played it, but I like the books. They're, they're <laughs> He's really great. He's a collector of all the books. May I say all of the books? No. <laughs> of GURPS books. They're really great reference books, though. It's like their sci-fi book. I can't remember what it's called now. The technology just covers various potential branches of science throughout, you know, the future. And, mm-hmm. and it's kind of cool. That's why I was asking. Cause I was wondering if maybe yeah. you'd... basically, if you try to move our household, it's like moving a library. <laughs> yeah. That's how mine is too. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I can't move ever. Again. Yeah. That's kind of like, we're going to move one more time. And then if you get more books, we're not going anywhere. <laughs> I actually prefer space opera to hard sci-fi. I just decided to do my young adult kind of a, as mostly hard sci-fi because I hadn't seen it done before. Uh-huh. I've seen plenty of space opera kind of young adult stuff, but I didn't want to do that. I wanted to I wanted to do something that I would have to do the research so I could show the research and maybe get kids interested in finding out how this stuff really works because I I have kind of a soapbox that I think that sciences and stuff are given a very short uh, shaft in our school system these days and that people don't appreciate what a science education can do for uh, society. Mm -hmm. I hear people all the time saying, oh, defund NASA. They're not doing any good. But (laughs) (laughs) you look at all (laughs) Yeah, I know. You look at all the stuff that we have because of NASA. Mm Mm-hmm. Well, I don't understand how the pursuit of knowledge of any kind is a waste. You know, I mean, people act like somehow trying to understand the world we live in is somehow a waste of time. 
<laughs> it, it bugs the heck out of me. And I thought maybe if I can get some kids interested in science and learning about science and how this stuff really works, you know, they'll, they'll look at that they'll say, you know, why, why is that space station spinning? And how come when he's not in these, when he's in the central shaft of the space station, it's no, there's no gravity, but when he's in the ring, you know, there's gravity. Why is that? And if they want a more detailed explanation than I give, they go out and they find it. Oh, that's really cool. I wonder how you would build something like that. And they remember that. And, you know, 20 years from now, they're an engineer trying to figure out how to build the next generation of space station. Yeah. I think it's a good approach. I mean, it's, it's a good way. It's edutainment. edutainment. And of course now, you know, they have these scientists that are out there saying, you know, we think we figure out how to theoretically build something that would be similar to warp drive. And I look at my faster than light travel, which I've left deliberately vague, and I'm like, yes, I'm not quite <laughs> far off. <laughs> That's so cool. It could happen. Yeah. I think almost anything you can imagine could be possible in the future some, some way. Yeah. Yes. Just no matter how to get there and how to do it. Well, just think of trying to explain what we're doing right now, talking on a computer to each other. Try explaining that to someone 60 years ago, much less 100 years ago. You know, I mean, it really couldn't have. You know, and she lives in this world. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you, you just, just imagine and just imagine how much its technology has changed in our lifetimes. It's changed quicker in our lifetimes just than most lifetimes. Try to explain Facebook to people from the Middle Ages. So. <laughs> You'd be <laughs> burned ages. at the stake. <laughs> uh, so what other books are in the works? Well, in the works, I'm... I'm currently struggling with a lack of motivation right now, not because I don't like writing, but just because I've been... We'll give you a deadline. We'll motivate you. I like the honesty, at least. I'm on my 11th day of working with Now Today Off, and all of last week was 10 and a half hour days. Oh, yeah, you don't have Getting any kind of meaningful writing done has been really hard the last couple of months. But I'm I'm working on my next World of Kalimi novel. It's going to be called Scars of the Sundering. I'm only about 20,000 words into it, and I... The last time I wrote, I actually went backwards in word count because I decided to change the relationship between two of the main characters completely. So I'm having to rewrite a bunch of that already. I'm hoping that that'll be my next novel out. I keep telling people that it will be. (laughs) (laughs) We shall see. Um, I find that if I don't write what I'm in the mood to write, that it's just a real struggle and a slog and I end up being resentful and not doing it. Um, so I also have a third Zach Jackson novel that I've got kind of the bare bones plot written out for, um, Zach Jackson and the Hives of Valtra. It'll be another kind of over the summer trip where he goes on another junior ranger expedition to, um, the Valtraxian homeworld. I haven't quite figured out everything that's going to happen to him yet, but I have to try to be original because in the last two books, you know, bad things keep happening to the protagonist and people, and I don't want it to become kind of cliche like, oh, well, he goes somewhere and something bad happens to him. Because I mean, how often he becomes a hermit. <laughs> so I have to try to figure out how to get some drama in there without, you know, putting my protagonist in the hospital again. <laughs> you can only go to that well so many times. And then another podcast, Fear the Boot. I don't know if you've heard of it. They're an RPG podcast. Well, they call themselves a, a, a podcast about tabletop games and a little bit more. They're doing a fiction, a fantasy and science fiction anthology. And I have a story in that. I'm not quite sure when that'll be out. Um, I know my story is accepted. All the edits are finished. There's like one sentence I need to change. Um, it's it's actually a really big-time space opera, space fantasy story. Because I thought, well, if I'm doing hard sci-fi for Zach Jackson, I'm just going to go gonzo space opera for this short story and 
kind of develop a new universe that's just as wacky as I can think of it being, except that I decided to make it kind of really dark and mature. Uh, so, so that's I've got that. Zach Jackson with an X. <laughs> with an X. <laughs> yeah. And then I, I actually, I'm going to plan on writing some full-length novels in that universe, um, but I'm still developing that. Uh, I haven't quite decided where I'm going to go with that yet. Cool. And it'll be several years down the road because I have to finish these other two books first before I do anything different. And then, oh. of course, I've got several unfinished books that I want to finish up at some point. Um, I had a really good kind of a horror western kind of a steampunk story going with a uh, Victorian cop who was part of a uh, secret agency that dealt with the supernatural who was chasing Jack the Ripper in the American Old West. Uh-huh. And then that that was the year that one of my family members died. Uh-huh. I was like 22,000 words into it. I was really into the story. I was like, this is so awesome. And then, you know, the rest of the month was just, I, I, was like, uh-huh. I can't write anything. I wrote yeah. 100 words the rest of the month after that. Oh, that's horrible. <laughs> and then I never got back to it. I hope you do. I hope you get that finished. Sounds sounds good. Yeah, yeah I, I was really excited about that one. I had you know this Victorian police officer with his uh, his partner was a succubus, and it was kind of a dark, disturbing steampunk western story that I just I was really digging. <laughs> <laughs> I figure with a succubus, it's probably not too lighthearted. No, it's not. It's not lighthearted at all. Because I actually got some parts in it where I was kind of disturbed myself. I was like, man, I'm not sure I'm going to keep that when I. And it just, that's just way that's pretty that's pretty bad even for me <laughs> so what, what's kind of the general writing method you use when you write a book do you just do you plot out the overall plot before you uh start writing or, or how do you do that yeah i'll write a couple of paragraphs that are basically kind of a synopsis of the plot and the main characters and then i'll write up short bios on most of the main characters that i think will be appearing in the story um, if it's a new world or new or a new setting, I'll write a bunch of notes on that. And then usually I'll just start writing because I'll have like a scene in mind and I'll just, I'll just start writing. If I get stuck, then I'll go back and start outlining and try to figure out where I need to go. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't think I, to this point, I have not entirely outlined a story before I started writing. But I have ended up outlining three out of the four books while I was either in editing or trying to finish up the first draft just so I could figure out where I needed to take the story. Um, it was especially bad in the second Jack Jackson book because I was I was writing scenes as they came to me, but they weren't necessarily in order. Like I wrote the Christmas party scene within the first three or four days of starting to write the book, and that's much later in the year than when the book starts. So I just I had all these haphazard scenes that I had to like fit together. So I needed to outline that just so I could figure out how to fit it together without having too many continuity errors, which my editors thankfully caught. I think all of them, <laughs> at least all of the ones that you know anybody has would have been able to notice so far. I haven't had any feedback saying, "Hey, how come on page such and such he says this, but on page, but later it's this way." Yeah. I try to get those because I just I just would hate to have that conversation with anybody. <laughs> yeah. Because I screwed up. That's why. And a lot of times what I'll do, and I don't know if any other writers do this, but I will freely admit to this, that if I write something and then 30 pages later I forget about it, I'll just keep going. And then like 10 pages after that I'll have another character remind us like, hey, and I'll have them call each other on it. (laughs) Like, oh, yeah, I forgot. (laughs) 
<laughs> Usually, if my characters do that in the book, it's because I forgot, not because I planned for them to forget. <laughs> but hey, if you forget, your characters could. Yeah, that's exactly right. And I figure it also gives them a little bit of realism because they're not perfect. They're always forgetting stuff and screwing up, mm-hmm. and just in little ways that don't really like destroy the world. But they're like, oh man, I can't believe I did that. <laughs> Plus, it amuses me, and it and it it helps me get you know push the word count out. Yeah. Those little things. And it, it builds character too, because that way, you know, you, you can see these characters as flawed individuals rather than perfect beings in this fictional world. Well, I think it's cool that you hire a, a editor to edit your, your books. Yes, you have to. I, I've i never read a self-published book that hasn't been edited because I just don't think I could ever get through it. I, I've seen people who say, um, you know, I'm going to self-publish this on Kindle because it's so easy. It's like, oh, who'd you get to edit it? Eh, I don't need that. Uh, okay. yeah, you, you do. <laughs> yeah. How good do you think you are? You need it. Yeah. Reading too. Microsoft Word is not a good proofreader. Oh, God, um, no. And its grammar checker is not good either. No, do not rely on that. Yeah. Um, so what other tips do you have for writers who might try to self-publish? Shop around for cover art. You can spend a lot of money really fast for cover art. And it will be – if you go with an artist you like, it will be good. But you might have been able to get something less expensive that you like just as much and without blowing your budget. Because I, I have done this where I've spent thousands of dollars on cover art. And the covers look great. But then you look at how much money you make per copy, and you know I'm not selling gangbusters here. And I'm like, well, okay, so I made eighteen dollars this month selling those books. Yeah. And it take a long time to recoup that thousand dollar cover I bought. Yeah. <laughs> and then when you start thinking, okay, this is my fourth book, this is my fifth book, and you start looking at how much money you're putting into it, you know, don't be afraid to bargain shop for artists, um, but skimp on editing. <laughs> Pay, mm, yeah. Take- and try to get people to read your material who aren't um, related to you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> or at least if they're related to you, you know that they're not going to hold back, that they can be cruel to you if they need to be. So find your meanest relative who's willing to read it. Right. Willing to, somebody you know will give you honest feedback. I, I can trust my wife to give me honest feedback because I hear her reading it because she's uh, she comments out loud while she's reading my books on the first draft. And she'll yell at me if I do something she doesn't like. <laughs> and she she doesn't – and she will – I have had her tell me, like, this does not work. I can't believe that this character would do this. This is not – this doesn't – it's not within the character's um, personality to do this or, you know, this passage just doesn't work. It's not good. You need to rewrite it. <laughs> and then, of course, I have other, other, pe- other people I know who will give me the same kind of feedback – <laughs> I, I like her. Give me the same kind of feedback. Well, you need that feedback because you're so close to it. You can't see certain things. You know, yeah, and she's... actually, after I finished writing the first draft, I would prefer not to deal with that story again for at least three months. Mm-hmm. Uh, it doesn't always work that way because my wife wants to read it right away, and she's asking me questions about it. I'm like, I don't care. <laughs> Just change it. I don't... <laughs> yeah, you need to walk away from it for a while. Get a fresh perspective. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it's sort of like that in filmmaking, too. Mm-hmm. You want to do it, but after you're done, you're just like, oh, it's torture. And then after a while, you're like, let's do it again. Yeah, it, well, it's hard <laughs> to promote it. You're burnt out, and you're just sick of it. And then you're like, then I have to promote it. No, I don't want to look at it. I don't want to talk about it. I'm still recovering. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah. And by the time we get to the editing stage, I'm usually ready to get back into the story and say, okay, let's see how I can make this better. Yeah. Um, I'm curious what kind of costs, if someone's going to self-publish and they're looking for cover art and an editor, what kind of price ranges are typical out there? Um, for a story that's somewhere between like 75 and 95,000 words or so, you can probably spend at least $300 and up on editing. Mm -hmm. um, and that's, that's mostly just copy editing. The type of editing where somebody will say, you know, you really need to move this scene around here and the really hardcore story editing, mm -hmm. those editors cost a lot of money. Uh, which is why I'm glad I have somebody who can, who will do it for me for free <laughs> because she's my wife and she loves me. <laughs> <laughs> and she benefits she, when you do. <laughs> yeah. So, and the last paid editor said, you know, most of now you only need to really pay for proofreading because she's honed her skills to the point that I probably really ought to start crediting her. <laughs> <laughs> that would be a good idea. So, yeah, you, several. I, I would not spend less than like three hundred fifty dollars or so for, you know, say thousand words for editing. Cover art, uh, you can get, you can go anywhere from a thousand dollars on a cover. Like um, the first Zach Jackson novel, that's a watercolor painting that a, uh, a friend of mine did, and that cost him about a thousand dollars. Yeah. Wow. But it's an original watercolor that I have hanging up in my office. Um, he used his son as a model. <laughs> Oh. Um, he, he also does the Dreamland Chronicles webcomic, if anybody's interested in seeing more of his work. Uh, but the second Zach Jackson cover I got, it's a digital art, and it was only $150. Mm. Oh, wow. Cool. And it's it actually looks like it could – well, I guess the color palette's similar, but you know, I think it's a good-looking cover. Mm -hmm. I like the way the art looks, and I didn't – break the bank on it um, i wanted my friend to paint me another watercolor but i started looking at my budget and i was like i just really can't afford that and i can't justify the cost based on how many i know i'm going to sell i mean if i was looking at a movie deal or i knew i would get a thousand sales the first day i'd be like sure no problem but that doesn't happen to me yeah <laughs> have you been ever approached at all about optioning or nope. have you uh, nope no, no. I've only I I have a hard time getting reviews. Oh yeah, because yeah, that can be tricky. Of, there's a lot of places that do book reviews, but they'll be like, no self-published books. Mm-hmm. Like, but you haven't even read it. Don't care. It's crap. It's like, I have yeah. That judgment without reading it. All self-published is crap. Mm-hmm. Mm, okay, I don't want to talk to you now. <laughs> yeah, you get that with independent filmmaking too. Yes, and it's not necessarily true. There is a lot out there that's not good. Mm -hmm. But there's a lot that is. There's a lot that is. There's a lot of people who actually take the time to do things the correct way, getting editors, getting proofreaders, you know, paying good money for cover art, not just having their seven-year-old draw it with crayon. Mm-hmm. Although, I see more. Although, like yeah. <laughs> I was say it depends on the seven-year-old. Well, yeah, and it depends on what kind of book. If it's, a, you know, a children's book, that's perfectly fine. Yeah, it would be. But I've seen some covers for, like, adult novels that you're like, did you have your teenager draw that in our class <laughs> is that really what is that the look you're going for or is that just because you got it for free it's like yeah. is that on purpose yeah well, we're looking at the wings of twilight cover right now it's yeah. pretty cool and i love the reflection on the blade of the sword and yeah it's very yeah. subtle he's an award he's an award nominated artist now <laughs> ah. 
It's a very the good who, picture. The guy who did the maps for those books, by the way, used to be a physicist for JPL. Oh, really? Oh, wow. So the, the maps are geographically accurate. I don't know if anybody cares about that, but I just thought that was cool. Because <laughs> he took my map. He said, you know that geography doesn't work this way. I was like, well, fix it. So I don't care what you do. Just fix it. Yeah. <laughs> I want my map to look cool and be accurate. Yeah. Accurate fix it as long as it looks cool. Be, but. Anything else you want to talk about? Uh, any other tips you might have? Yeah, when you're writing your first draft, don't be afraid for something to be horrible. Mm-hmm. Don't just go back and keep write, rewriting that first chapter until you think it's perfect because then mm-hmm. you'll finish. Just And sometimes I'm guilty of not following my own advice. But, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but really, if you want to get that first draft done, you just have to knuckle down and just do it. Mm-hmm. Don't, don't worry about if you, you know, screw something up because that's what editing is for. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's the hardest thing not to do. But it's like I studied journalism and they're like, don't edit in the field. You know, meaning, you know, don't don't have this intellectual conversation with yourself of, oh, is this ethical? Should I put this in or not? Put it in. We can always, when once you get it written out, we can always take something out. But it's a lot quicker to take it out than it is to put it in. <laughs> and there's various tricks that you can do to help yourself do that. But like if you're using Word, you can turn off all the autocorrection so mm. that you don't get your little red squiggly line every time it thinks you've made a mistake. Because I know a lot of people will reflexively go back and try to say, oh, what did I mess, mess up? And then yeah. But if you turn it off, you don't get that. There's also software out there that's specifically for writing novels, like um, I think Scrivener is one of them, and YWriter is another one, and that one's free, by the way. And they will let you write it scene by scene so that you can organize your story by scene and kind of drag and drop stuff around if you want to rearrange it. Mm-hmm. And it kind of gives you a a better layout than just having a hundred thousand words in one giant word document mm-hmm. it kind of breaks it up into more easily digestible chunks when you're writing. And okay. I, I found that that's very helpful for getting somewhere because I can look back and see what I've done and not say, okay, I've got, I've got this huge word file and I still have more to go. It's, I, I hate huge word files. <laughs> yeah. That's cool. Reminds me a little bit of script writing. So yeah. And there's, I think there's, there's several script writing softwares that are similar to that too. Mm-hmm. Why did you decide to go self-publishing versus trying to get attention of a publisher or, and do you suggest that for other people? Um, one problem I had is that writing a, writing a query letter is a different skill set than writing fiction. Mm-hmm. Uh, writing a query letter is basically selling yourself and your story to an agent who may or may not be in the mood for that particular story at that particular time. And I have a problem with the whole agency model because of that very fact. I mean, you get an agent, but they may not be in the mood for that story. They may not have a publisher who's publishing that kind of story at that time. Mm -hmm. And those are the kinds of reasons they reject stories other than the fact that they just don't like it. Mm -hmm. But they'll sit on it for six months or so because they have such a big pile before they even tell you that. And sometimes it's more than six months, sometimes six months to a year. And according to etiquette, if you submit it to one agent, you have to sit on that story and not submit it to anybody else. So you've got six months to a year where you've got this story that nothing's happening to it. Mm. And you're not getting any kind of feedback on it from them because they won't even acknowledge that you've sent it to them in many cases. And a lot of them nowadays won't even tell you if they reject you. They'll just say, if you don't hear from us within eight months, assume you're rejected. Wow. Like, well, 
and I have a very kind of one track mind. And once I write a story, I want, while I do want to step away from it for a little while, I don't want to like turn over to a completely different story and write a whole nother book while I'm waiting to work on this other book. Mm-hmm. So I thought, okay, if I'm going to do this, I have, I have to just keep moving ahead. I can't just put this on the back burner for eight months to a year or 18 months while somebody decides whether or not they think it's publishable. So I just went the self-publishing route because it's nowadays it's so the tools are out there for anybody to use with Kindle Direct Publishing, um, Drive Through Fiction, where if you have the software to create the files they need, and a lot of this software is available for free or inexpensively, then you can create everything you need to publish it. Mm-hmm. And plus, if you go through the agency model and you get a book deal. You know, you get your advance, which for first-time author is not that much. <clears throat> and then you might get royalties in the range of 15 to 17% if you earn out your advance. So, you know, if your book sells enough copies that the publishing company has made back the money that they gave you in advance, then you start getting like 17% royalties. Well, if you self-publish on Kindle and you get it out there, the first copy you sell, you get 70% of that money back. Of your mm-hmm. cover price, so mm-hmm. I'm making seventy percent profit on every copy I sell, mm-hmm. and that just goes directly to me because I've already paid my editor and my artists and all that. True. Which is different than a lot of these um, vanity publishing houses, which shall go unnamed. But basically, they say if you give us, if you give us three thousand dollars, we'll put together this publishing package for you, and you won't have to do a thing. It's like, well, that's the wrong way to go about it because you're paying them. And then once they have your money, they have no incentive to do anything with your book. Mm-hmm. And at best, you might get a couple copies for yourself that you've paid a lot of money for. And sure, your book's in their catalog, but you don't see those books really being sold on Amazon. Mm. Well, I think it's really empowering how people can use Kindle and just e-readers in general, e-books, and publish on demand for their books too. So yeah. I think that's... Yeah, uh, Great. All my all my books are available in print also <clears throat> because of uh, CreateSpace, which mm-hmm. is tied into the Amazon system. So they both appear on the listing. Somebody goes and looks up one of my books on Amazon. They see the Kindle version. They see the print version. Uh, they can get it. You know, if they have an Amazon Prime membership, they can get it in two days for free, mm-hmm. no additional shipping charges. And it's actually print on demand. So it's actually manufactured when they order it. Yeah, I know. It's great. I mean, it's so many more options now to get, get your books out there. And if I wanted to do hardcover, I could go through Lulu. I did that for a, a limited edition at Gen Con. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that's pretty expensive to do, and my cost goes way up if I do that. So I'd have to sell the book at really more money than it's probably worth. But it's a collectible then. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah. Well, that's what I did for Gen Con. I, made, I combined my two fantasy novels to an omnibus edition, got a new cover made for the two of them from a designer at my day job. I hired her on the side to do it and uh, kind of did a whole omnibus and said, this is a Gen Con limited edition. There's 50 copies of it in hardcover and they're all going to be numbered and signed. And Gen Con is the only place you can buy them and only until 50 are gone. And then they'll never be available in this omnibus edition again. Cool. All right. Before we go is shameless, shameless plug time. So you know, please let everybody know where they can find you online and your books. You can find my books on Amazon. You can either search for my name, Hans Cummings, or look for the titles, Wings of Twilight, Iron Fist of the Aurochs. The Foundation of Dracanor also comes up. And just look up Zach Jackson and um, 
those two books will pop up right away. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at HC Cummings. And I have a website, uh, vffpublishing.com, which I infrequently update with uh, various publishing news. Okay, great. And VFF stands for Visions of Fantasy and Future, right? Yes. Okay. I, I don't use that name very much because when I publish through Kindle and stuff like that, I usually just have to keep the Amazon kind of livery on that. Yeah. <laughs> but that's kind of the official name of the website, and anything I do personally is under that name. Great. Hi, I'm R.A. Salvatore, Bob Salvatore. I've been writing fantasy books for 25 years now and going strong, and you're listening to Genretainment. Thanks to Hans for taking the time to talk with us about his book and self-publishing. We hope you enjoyed both interviews on today's episode. So that's it for today's Genretainment. We'll be back soon with all new guests from our favorite films, TV shows, novels, and web series. And you can keep track of us over at genretainment.com. And don't forget, you can also check out the other great shows on Sci-Fi Pulse Radio channel, like SFP Now, The Roundtable, and more. Genretainment is a production of Alien Jungle Bug Productions. Until Until next next time. time. Bad monkey.